Hi there and welcome to another Osler podcast. My name is Todd Fraser and in this podcast series we interview leading clinicians, characters and troublemakers who are changing the face of clinical healthcare. In this episode I'll be chatting to Dr Paul Seacombe. Paul is an intensivist at the Alice Springs Hospital, one of the most remote ICUs on earth. He's the lead author of a recent paper in critical care and resuscitation that describes the characteristics, resource consumption and outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander patients admitted to the ICU. And it's my great pleasure to have him on the podcast today. Welcome, Paul. Uh, Thanks, Todd. Uh, It's great to be here and thanks for the kind invitation to have a chat. Paul, why is it important to uh, undertake the review that you did? Um, So... uh, I guess there's there's lots of things that separate out um, uh, Indigenous Australians from the the rest of the population. Um, uh, and and uh, just by way of quick uh, caveat, I'm going to use the term Indigenous uh, throughout, uh, recognising that within Australia this refers to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. Um, but the review used uh, the ANZICS adult patient database, who define uh, indigenous status by the term indigenous, recognising that uh, ANZIX clearly uses New Zealand data as well. Um, so I will use the term indigenous. I'm aware that there are some sensitivities around that, uh, but I'll recognise that it is referring to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who are the original inhabitants of, uh, of this continent. Um, so in, indigenous Australians are quite different to the the rest of the population for a variety of reasons. Uh, uh, There's great resilience and great hope within that population, but uh, following on from the colonial process and the dispossession and the marginalisation, there are a lot of things that have followed through from that. Uh, Indigenous population at at population level is significantly younger um, by about 15 years to non-Indigenous populations. They're far less likely to attain uh, high levels of education and in fact their year 12 attainment um, is much lower than that of uh, non-Indigenous people and that flows through to higher levels of unemployment. Um, They're more likely to live in outer regional remote and very remote remote parts of uh, Australia, which bring about other uh, disadvantages uh, for them. And separating out that um, remoteness from Indigenous status can be, can be difficult. Along with all of that, they carry a much higher burden of disease that has a much younger uh, age of onset. Um, By way of example, uh, Randall and some colleagues looked at New South Wales hospital data uh, uh, and found that not only did uh, Indigenous patients discharged from public hospitals have much higher rates of one comorbid disease process, and I think it was something like a third of Aboriginal patients had one comorbid disease compared to 25% of uh, non-Aboriginal, but they were also more likely to have two or more, and they were much younger uh, when those disease processes were identified. We also know that rates of dialysis-dependent end-stage renal disease uh, within the Indigenous population are uh, several-fold higher than uh, non-Aboriginal. So so despite all that background, um, I I was a little surprised um, when I came to Alice Springs and started looking at uh, what we know about critical care and Indigenous people that there was so little uh, out there in the the literature. 
there are several small groups who have conducted some single centre studies. Um, Di Stevens in Darwin is very well known as a, a strong advocate uh, and her work dates back to the early 2000s. Um, Melita Trout and some of her colleagues in Townsville have done some work and of course Kwok Ho and Jeff Dobbs in Perth have done some, some great work. But all of those really just single centre. Nobody's Nobody had ever looked at it a, a, across the country, which is what led me to, uh, once I've found the breadth of what's in the APD, to undertake this review. So just tell us briefly about the adult patient database and then how you went about the review. Um, so the adult patient database is something that every ICU trainee should find out about uh, sooner rather than later because it's an absolute wealth of uh, knowledge and information upon which they can build their their trainee projects uh, really for less work than it would take to design a, a, a randomised controlled trial. So I'm surprised that more trainees aren't aware of it. Um, the adult patient database is one of four uh, clinical quality registries that uh, the ANZIX core, that's the Centre for Outcome and Resource Evaluation, uh, manage. Um, it contains about 90% of all ICU admissions across both Australia and uh, New Zealand. And within the database, there is some basic demographic information, um, some diagnostic uh, information, uh, and a whole lot of uh, physiology as well as outcome data that's related to both uh, ICU mortality as well as uh, hospital mortality. Uh, so it's a, it's a wealth of information just sitting there waiting to be interrogated. Um, and as I say, you know, trainees need to uh, really uh, do a little bit more about finding out about that so they can tap into it for their projects. So when you were constructing the review, what were the parameters that you set around it? Um, so what I really sought to do was to... Um, answer the question of, uh, from an Indigenous point of view, who, who, were, who were the Indigenous people that were interacting with uh, intensive cares? Where were they doing it? Uh, what was putting them into intensive care? Uh, what resources were they using while they were in intensive care and what, what were their outcomes? And I thought probably what that would do um, would be to... Uh, a, describe what's, uh, what's going on, but also perhaps identify um, some diagnostic groups where there are uh, disparities between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians, uh, and in doing so, open up uh, for discussion uh, some areas of inequality or perhaps even some access issues that Indigenous Australians uh, face in, in getting into uh, intensive cares. And I must admit, I had I had some really good help from uh, a lot of other people in in doing this. Um, uh, David Pilcher, who is uh, chair of the core, was uh, very helpful in sort of modifying those questions and knowing exactly what parts of the database to to pull down and uh, and and look at those aspects of uh, of critical care. And, and I think. Um, the review found and identified some of those areas, and I'm sure we'll talk about those in, in just a minute. What do we now know from the results of this about the presentation of Indigenous Australians to an ICU? Um, so 
we certainly know that Indigenous people are overrepresented in uh, ICUs uh, and overrepresented to about the same level they're overrepresented in acute hospital admissions anyway. Um, so the um, at the 2016 census, um, about 3.3% of the population identified as uh, Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. Um, what we found was that uh, about 3.9, nearly 4% of critical care admissions uh, were identified as uh, Indigenous Australians. So uh, that's about 1.3 times what you would expect given the population, and that's about what you see uh, in terms of acute hospital uh, admissions. That does rely very much on getting the coding uh, correct as it goes into the uh, adult patient database. Uh, and certainly there's some signal that perhaps some jurisdictions are systematically under-coding uh, Indigenous status. Um, equally, there are some, uh, some ICUs seem to have uh, a fair bit of variability in their Indigenous admission rates. So there's some question about the data veracity, but I think probably all of those things iron themselves out uh, in the wash. So overrepresented, I guess that's the, the key finding. Um, uh, and just, but despite that overrepresentation, um, a, once you adjust for uh, illness acuity, uh, where you're admitted, uh, the date of admission, uh, because we know that mortality is falling over uh, over years, uh, there is actually no difference in hospital mortality nor in ICU mortality between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal or Indigenous and non-Indigenous uh, critically ill patients. Now, this, uh, despite the fact that Probably Indigenous Australians are slightly sicker when they come into uh, intensive care. So we certainly found that the Apache 3 scores were about the same for uh, Indigenous and non-Indigenous groups, but the non-Indigenous groups uh, was about 15 years younger on average than the non-Indigenous groups. So by the time you pull out the age component of the Apache 3 score, um, uh, and pull out, we can, we're able to pull out the chronic health evaluation as well. The acute illness um, component, so the degree of physiological derangement of patients coming into ICU was actually significantly higher in the Indigenous group than the, the non-Indigenous group. So you kind of suspect that what's leading to that mortality equivalence is probably the slightly younger years, um, but all of that is yet to be elucidated in, in further work. Now, Paul, you also mentioned that you were looking at socioeconomic disadvantage and um, uh, the concept of remoteness. Can you tell us about what you looked at there? Yeah, so th this was this was really interesting work and we sort of were led down this path by one of the reviewers uh, who clearly had more insight into the data than we did uh, at the time. Uh, and, and his question really was, there are uh, there are clearly some highly urbanised uh, Indigenous Australians who have spent most of their time in cities and clearly there are um, some Indigenous Australians who have spent the vast majority of time, uh, most majority of their life out in very remote Australia. Uh, were there any differences between uh, those groups? Um, uh, and when we looked at... Um, the illness acuity in particular across those groups uh, and the diagnostic groups. In fact, 
the trends that we were seeing uh, for Indigenous Australians were there irrespective of whereabouts in Australia they were living, whether it was very, very remote or whether they were living in uh, the very small proportion who lived in inner regional, but certainly the proportion of people that lived in outer regional Australia was pretty much the same. So the theme was pretty consistent irrespective of where uh, Indigenous Australians uh, were living. We found this really interesting and we wonder, we don't actually have any firm data to support this, but we wonder whether this is reflective of the access problems that are described in a lot of other epidemiological work with Indigenous Australians. Um, we know that despite having health services there, they're sometimes not accessed as well as they could be by uh, Indigenous Australians. And there are a number of reasons uh, for that. Some of that will be around cultural safety. Some of that will be around uh, other commitments that Indigenous people have and prioritise uh, above their health. Um, but we suspect that what our data does is add to that message that um, not only do you need to offer a medical service, but it actually needs to be a quality medical service that needs to be offer a culturally safe uh, and appropriate uh, setting for Indigenous people to, to interact with. And Paul, in terms of the types of issues that um, Indigenous Australians present with, you noticed um, some marked differences in the types of pathology, the, the types of services that they were accessing as well, didn't you? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Indigenous Australians are almost never seen in private intensive cares. And I guess that's not altogether surprising when uh, you think that certainly Indigenous Australians are overrepresented in those areas that are of, of poorer socioeconomic uh, circumstances. Um, but they're also underrepresented in elective admissions. Uh, and again, we wondered whether that that's a flow-on effect from this uh, inability to access uh, specialty and subspecialty ambulatory care in particular. You know, a lot of patients, in order to access that elective, those elective procedures, actually go through uh, ambulatory outpatients in the in the first instance. Um, so we wondered whether Indigenous patients weren't actually even getting to that point to be put on elective lists and end up in um, uh, elective ICU beds. The other really key differences and um, what we did with the diagnostic codes was sort of combine the large range of diagnostic codes that exist in the APD into sort of eight uh, broad categories. Um, and what we found was that the Indigenous patients were certainly very much overrepresented in the area of sepsis, um, which again is perhaps not surprising given the relatively lower socioeconomic status uh, that Indigenous patients are coming from, the often poor housing, um, the lack of uh, uh, sanitary features in housing. And I certainly know that a lot of uh, housing in our bit of the world, they don't have running toilets, there's no running shower. In fact, even having running water in some houses is, um, uh, is virtually non-existent. Um, we know from some of the work that one of my colleagues at Alice Springs Hospital has done that the bloodstream infection rates uh, for Indigenous people is far surpasses that that would be expected. Um, so with all of that in mind, I guess it's perhaps not surprising that Indigenous patients are so overrepresented in sepsis. But, you know, 
about 10% of ICU admissions across the country are for sepsis. For Indigenous Australians, 17% of their um, admissions are for sepsis. So it's not just a little bit over, it's actually well over. Uh, and that's a, an area that's amenable to public health uh, interventions. It also supported the work that uh, Fraser McGee's recently done looking at Indigenous um, uh, ICU admissions and severe trauma. Uh, so again, Indigenous patients are well overrepresented following uh, severe trauma, uh, again with similar mortality outcomes. The other areas where they're overrepresented are for diagnostic categories that encompass cardiovascular disease and respiratory disease. Um, and I guess the cardiovascular processes in particular follow on perhaps from the high rates of vasculopathy that go along with uh, diabetes and uh, um, the metabolic syndrome that you often see in Indigenous uh, populations, not only here but uh, across the rest of the world. What was also revealing was not just those diagnostic categories where Indigenous people were overrepresented, but the diagnostic categories where they were underrepresented. So substantially underrepresented following cardiac surgery. Uh, and again, that might link back into this theme of trouble getting into um, uh, those elective and semi-elective uh, lists. But also the diagnostic categories uh, um, for gastrointestinal reasons and for neurology. And the reasons for that are not clear from the, the data that we have. Paul, once um, Indigenous Australians reach the intensive care unit, what do we know about their course, the, the types of therapies that they receive and their outcomes? Yeah, sure. Uh, so certainly the theme both within this review as well as the um, the single centre studies with Di Stevens, Melita Trout uh, and Kwakoa are that uh, they're overwhelmingly younger, but they're for reasons that, again, are not clear, are far more likely to undergo invasive mechanical ventilation. Now, that, that could be because uh, their admissions are far more likely to be emergent rather than elective. It could be because uh, the physiology is far more deranged. Um, uh, it could be because they're younger. Uh, we certainly think that we're probably ventilating older Australians much less. Maybe it's because we see these young uh, young patients and think we can do more uh, and therefore we ventilate them. Uh, again, all of that is uh, postulation. Uh, it's hypothesis generating. I, I don't know why that message recurrently comes out, both at Single Centre as well as this national review that uh, Indigenous Australians are more likely to be ventilated. Um, in terms of the rest of it, you know, the length of stay tends to be similar. Um, as I alluded to, the ICU mortality and hospital mortality are similar, particularly once you adjust for uh, things like uh, illness severity. One of the interesting things that I noticed was uh, was raised in the, the, the paper was the potential for a survival benefit related to more remotely living um, patients. Is this a, a statistical anomaly or is, it, um, is there something that might be behind this? It, it could be a statistical anomaly. Um, it, it might be related... Uh, it could also be a, a real effect. It may be related to... Uh, the distances that people need to travel to actually get to a critical care facility, which are uh, obviously going to be greater uh, in remote parts of the, the country. So whether there has been that so-called uh, trial of life before people actually get to ICU and therefore the, the people that are more likely to die have already died before they are arrived to ICU. Um, it's un it, Certainly for our review, it's unlikely to be an effective 
transferring uh, the sickest patients onto tertiary centres, which certainly occurs in uh, regional and remote ICUs. Um, we sort of avoided that by actually taking um, uh, patients who had been transferred to another facility out of the, the data set in the first instance and running some sensitivity analyses along those lines. So it, it doesn't appear to be because the remote centres are transferring uh, patients out. It's not a finding that is unique uh, to our data, though. This is something that's been reported in uh, some other data uh, that's outside of the critical care uh, literature. Um, so it's not clear whether this is a, a real effect or not. It's something that we're looking at in some further analyses that um, will not just be about Indigenous patients, but there might be something about being remote that uh, is protective. Um, but as I say, it may also be simply because those patients who are going to die have died en route uh, rather than actually in the ICU. So, Paul, where does this leave you? What sort of questions does this, um, this review raise for you uh, in your general care of Indigenous Australians? Um, so, I guess it raises a, a couple of questions for me, but I guess one of the things that I really wanted to to promote from this literature review and this data set was uh, that, you know, um, it, Indigenous Australians are not uncommon in, in our intensive care. They make up about 4% of uh, ICU admissions. We should probably be knowing more about that uh, as critical care physicians. And I don't think we can necessarily uh, rest on our laurels and say, oh, but their mortality outcomes are exactly the same. As intensive care physicians, we tend to remain within the boxes that are our ICUs and we don't raise our heads beyond the parapet all that often to see what's happening in uh, out in the community to our patients. And this is an opportunity for uh, both the college, uh, I would hope, as well as ANZICS to step up and say, actually, they are Indigenous patients are overrepresented in our ICUs. And although they have a similar mortality outcome, we need to actually address the drivers that are putting uh, Indigenous people into ICU and this is where we can actually stand up and do some good for uh, our community health colleagues and our uh, primary care physicians and say we actually need more resources, we need to uh, readdress the um, uh, the drivers that uh, contribute to this, and that includes things like housing, it includes things like improving health literacies, and the college and ANZICS can go some way towards uh, driving that, that process and advocating for uh, what is really a marginalised uh, population. I guess the other questions uh, that this data raises, uh, and there are a lot of them, uh, come some of it will come back to how confident we are in the data set that's there. And there's some signal in the data that perhaps for some intensive care units, we can't completely trust uh, the veracity of the data that's gone in. And I think uh, ANZICS and ANZICS Corps certainly are aware of that and there is work being done to, uh, to address that. We need to look at this signal of what's driving the higher rates of mechanical ventilation. Um, and it could well be that that is simply a marker of uh, higher illness acuity and um, that's what's driving that. But I, that might not be the, the whole story. And this story about uh, remoteness perhaps being um, 
having a mortality benefit is a really interesting one that needs to be drilled down on, and uh, we're doing some work around that at the moment. Paul Sagan, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast and sharing the results of your work with us today. Todd, thanks very much for your time and thanks for the opportunity to uh, tell this story a little bit more widely. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. For more great interviews just like this, visit our website at osla.force.com.